Charlotte was born with a handicap. Or maybe it was an illness and an accident early in life that resulted in the handicap. The records don't agree on that. But the one thing they do agree on is that Charlotte suffered from chronic, severe pain throughout her life. Her family was very religious. Both her grandfather and her elder brother were well-recognized pastors in England. And she felt that she should be serving God too, but her physical condition didn't even allow her to attend church regularly. Charlotte loved music and poetry, but she deeply resented the conditions, the constraints that the handicap placed on her. And as the years went by, she became increasingly bitter towards God for the hand that she had been dealt. She recognized that she needed to avoid that sin, but the harder she tried, the more she sinned. And that only added to her distress. By her 30s, Charlotte was bound by chains. Chains not only physical, but spiritual and mental as well. It was then that she met a well-known minister from Switzerland, Cesar Malin, when he came to spend some time in their home. One evening during a discussion, he asked her if she had peace with God. And then he listened patiently as she responded with all the bitterness and despair that had built up over the years. She deeply resented even being asked such a question. And even more, she resented his seemingly insensitive attitude about her physical condition as he insisted that it should not prevent her from knowing Christ. He challenged her to turn her life over to God. But Charlotte was so bitter that she wouldn't even talk to him. She wouldn't answer him. She wouldn't speak to him for days. In many ways, Charlotte's story parallels that of the invalid that you just heard Jimmy read about. Both were bound by chains of a physical disablement that they could do nothing about. Both needed to be set free of something that was greater than their physical condition. This third miracle that John records represents a transition point. The previous miracles had been done more or less privately, with only a few people even being aware that a miracle had taken place. But now, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's about to do a miracle that's going to come to the attention of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And, unfortunately, despite the well-known prophecy in Isaiah 35 that the lame would leap like a deer, this miracle doesn't lead to their belief, but instead becomes the excuse they use to try to kill him. With this miracle, Jesus is now clearly on the path to the cross. 
The miracle that we're considering today is sometimes called the healing at the pool. Others refer to it as the healing of the invalid. Personally, I prefer to call it the miracle of the questions. Because when I read it, it raises in my mind a lot of questions. Some are rather trivial. Others are deep, significant questions. Questions with answers that are fundamental to our faith. Today we'll consider some of those questions. And we'll save the hardest for the end. However, don't be misled. Although these verses raise questions, they're full of deep, meaningful, amazing truth. In many ways, these verses are a lot like a Matriska doll. Every time you open it, you find something else inside. The more you dig, the more truth you find. So let's get our hands a little dirty this morning. On the surface, at the top level... The miracle seems straightforward. Jesus encounters an invalid. Excuse me. He heals him. The man gets up and walks. Pretty straightforward. In fact, we see Jesus performing the same basic miracle using almost the same words in Luke 5 when he heals the man that's been lowered through the roof that favorite story of children in Sunday school. Uh, And then we see Peter use the same words when he heals an invalid in Acts 9. On the surface, it's a pretty straightforward miracle. Straightforward, at least, as far as miracles go. But let's go down to the next level and see some of those questions. John starts by telling us that Jesus was in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. But very uncharacteristically, he doesn't tell us which one. In the law, in Deuteronomy 16.16, the Jewish men are told that they should go to Jerusalem three times each year to worship at the temple, at Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Additionally, in Jesus' day, The Feast of Purim was a very significant event, and there were a number of other annual feasts or festivals in addition. So the first obvious question may be, which feast? Since John doesn't tell us, it's been the subject of much debate over the centuries. Various scholars have made a very good case for each one of the three feasts that are commanded in Deuteronomy, and for a number of the optional events as well. Since John can't tell us, I can only conclude that he, guided by the Holy Spirit, didn't think we should know. And therefore, it's probably pointless to spend very much time arguing about which feast it was. All we can say for sure is that Jesus was in Jerusalem for a feast or a festival. So the first question is going to go unanswered. Not a very good start for a sermon, is it? But John continues. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, 
which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades or porches. Now, now wait a minute, John. You don't even tell us which feast it is, but then you give us all this information about gates and pools. Why? I suspect that John, motivated by the Holy Spirit, as he writes, can't help but see a link, a connection, between the location where this miracle is going to take place and what Jesus taught us about being the Good Shepherd. In John 10, 7, Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. As John thinks forward to Jesus' comment, I'm sure he's noticing the connection between Jesus saying, I am the gate for the sheep and the location where the miracle takes place at the sheep gate. The sheep gate, some of your translations may say the sheep market instead, was on the northeast corner of the city wall in Jesus' day. And as you might guess, it earns the name because it's the gate that was used to bring in most of the animals, mainly sheep, for the temple sacrifice. It's not the closest gate to the temple. That would be the Golden Gate. But the Sheep Gate provides direct access to that relatively flat land north of Jerusalem that was well-suited for grazing and moving herds. Yet it's still only a few hundred feet from the temple entrance. John goes on to tell us that near the gate was the Pool of Bethesda. In Jesus' day, that pool was outside the city wall, and it would have been passed by anyone entering the city through the Sheep Gate. Although the water was certainly used for watering livestock, it wasn't a pool as those that grew up in the country might imagine, but probably closer to a modern-day swimming pool or spa. For many centuries, Biblical scholars questioned the actual existence of such a pool, with many claiming that John was just speaking figuratively and that the five colonnades were meant to represent the five books of Moses, since five-sided structures were virtually unheard of in the architecture of Jesus' day. But then, in 1888, While doing work on St. Anne's Church in that section of Jerusalem, a pool was uncovered. This area has been built and rebuilt repeatedly throughout the centuries. There are numerous churches and chapels, each built on top of a previous construction. It took archaeologists until 1964 to sort it all out, and confirm that this was indeed the pool of Bethesda. So that raises another question. What about those five colonnades or porches? It turns out you don't have to have a five-sided structure in order to be surrounded by five colonnades, not if one runs right through the center. The pool actually appears to have had an upper and a lower half with a colonnade separating the two. So once again, archaeology has proven that the Bible was exactly right, even when man didn't think it was possible. 
verse 3 goes on to tell us that there were a great multitude of sick and disabled people on those colonnades. Some were blind, some lame, they couldn't walk very well, and others were paralyzed, they couldn't walk at all, or perhaps not use their hands. It must have been an extremely depressing sight. We generally aren't used to seeing crippled or handicapped begging to survive here in America. But Chris and I certainly saw it in Ethiopia. Crippled and deformed people just lying beside the street, sometimes coming into the street if they were able to do so, begging as a way to survive. I clearly remember one man with severely deformed legs that was sitting on a makeshift wooden platform with small wheels at each corner, pushing himself along with his hands as he begged. Other than starving children, there aren't many more depressing sights. Living in a country where such scenes are rare, we have a hard time visualizing the extent of the pain and the suffering that Jesus must have seen. Here was a multitude of the most unfortunate, needy individuals that one can imagine. So another question comes to mind. Why were they all there instead of, beg- and instead of begging out somewhere where there was less competition and more opportunity? Well, the answer is in verse 4. Now, if you happen to be reading from an NIV or an RSV, or perhaps a few other translations, you'll be surprised to see that verse 4 has been left out, and a few words at the end of verse 3 as well. Why were they left out, and what does that say about the validity of this passage of Scripture? Well, the answer to the why part is simple. Many of the early Greek manuscripts don't contain verse 4. And most translators believe that it was added to later versions to explain what eventually is going to be said in verse 7. So, in order to be accurate to the earliest versions of the text, they leave it out of their translation. And they're probably correct in doing so. The missing words say, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. We don't have time this morning to discuss this subject in detail. There are certainly some good arguments for not leaving the verse in the text. But even if the verse is not included, it doesn't mean that the explanation it provides is not valid. God stopped talking through the written word with the last prophet when the Old Testament ended some 400 years earlier. We tend to think that he was silent during that entire time until Christ came, and then we discard the notion that anything miraculous was taking place until Jesus arrived. But remember, these are still God's chosen people. 
And there's certainly nothing that precludes God from doing miraculous deeds for them if he saw fit. No more than there is to say that he can't do miraculous deeds, miracles for us today. Perhaps an angel did periodically stir up the water and someone was healed. The obvious fact is that something was drawing a large multitude of sick to this very spot in the belief that that's exactly what would happen. Some scholars would like to write off any possible healing as just the natural result of a certain kind of special mineral water. I doubt if it's really that simple, but God can do his miracles any way he wants. The bottom line seems to be that healing must actually have been taking place on a fairly regular basis, or I'd be willing to bet that crowd would have thinned out over the years. Now we come to the main event. Starting with verse 5, one man had been an invalid there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him stretched out by the pool and knew how long he had been there, he said, do you want to get well? What kind of a question is that to ask someone who's been an invalid, has been crippled for 38 years? Of course he wants to get well. That's the exact reason he's at the pool of Bethesda in the first place. I read nine or ten different commentaries as I prepared for today. I think the only thing that they all agreed on was that Jesus' question seemed strange, out of place, and perhaps even unnecessary. Yes, of course I want to be well. But then, when we hear the man's actual answer, maybe the question wasn't so strange after all. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Instead of a straightforward yes, he makes an excuse. How often do we do the same thing when God or someone in church asks us a question? Instead of just saying yes, we respond with an excuse. The invalid's excuse actually seems reasonable at first. I can't do it myself. And I'm not worthy enough that anyone wants to help me. Clearly, he believed that the healing was possible, but that it took an action on his part or an action by a friend or someone else to make it happen. He couldn't do it himself, and he wasn't good enough that anyone wanted to help him. But I can't help but wonder how serious he really was about this healing business. After 38 years, maybe he had finally worked his way up the pecking order to that really ideal location, the best spot at the pool, the one that's sheltered from the hot summer sun and the cold winter winds, but yet still visible to the passers-by so his begging would be effective? Could he maybe have positioned himself a little closer to the pool so he could just roll in at the right time? After 38 years, was he comfortable 
with the Jewish welfare system, begging, and more comfortable than his desire to get well? Perhaps Jesus' question was not meant so much to get an honest answer as it was to cause the man to perform an honest self-assessment. What did he really want? If so, Jesus doesn't give the man time to rationalize further. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. I would have loved to have seen this. How did the man react? His healing was instantaneous. But did he get up cautiously, testing his balance after 38 years as an invalid? Or did he leap to his feet and dance? What was the expression on his face? What did he say? We don't know the answers to any of those questions, but we do know that he picked up his mat and he walked. And that's the miracle. But now the aftermath. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. We've heard so much so often about the Pharisees' attitude and all their laws about keeping the Sabbath that we might overlook a very interesting question right here. Why did they confront him about carrying his mat but not ask him about how he was healed? It's hard to find opportunities to defend the Pharisees. But in this case, maybe, at least at this one point, they deserve to be given a break. It doesn't seem that they actually saw the miracle take place, but likely encountered the man a little later as he was perhaps going home to tell his family the good news, still carrying his mat. It may be even likely that they didn't recognize the man. Have you ever run into a friend at a completely unexpected location and not recognized him or her? I have. Or perhaps they had never even seen this man before, so they had no idea that a miracle had taken place. Well, if that's so, the comments they made would have been a perfectly normal reaction when they saw someone carrying a mat on the Sabbath. And in fairness to them, they don't seem to have pushed the issue any further when the healed invalid responded, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Instead, they merely asked the obvious question, who gave such an absurd order? And then accepted the man's honest reply, I don't know. But then the account takes a strange twist. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. We'll come back to this ending in just a minute. But first, I want to go a couple levels deeper and look at a few more key questions. First is a very serious question that we ask all the time. Why? 
Why heal this particular man out of all of that vast multitude that was there? Why didn't Jesus heal them all, or at least some of them? The answer to that question is difficult. Difficult to really understand because it deals with the very nature of God himself. And as mortals, we can never fully understand God's nature. Or perhaps more correctly, we'll never have more than the tiniest inkling into his true nature. It's also a different quest, difficult question, but because the answer tends to eliminate us from any active role in the equation. And Satan has done a very, very good job of convincing us that we should be in control. I believe that the answer to the question is actually given back in verse 2 when John tells us the name of the pool. See, there was a reason he gave us all that detail. Bethesda means house of mercy or house of grace. And that's what this miracle is primarily all about. It isn't just a miracle showing that Jesus had the power to heal. He did that beautifully in the second miracle. This is a miracle showing Jesus dispensing grace and mercy as only God can. And in doing that, it provides us with a reference point when we are tempted to ask those questions. Why did or why didn't God do something? Back in Exodus 33, verse 19, God is about to show Moses his goodness. Not his glory, as Moses had actually requested, but his goodness. And immediately before doing so, God makes a very important statement to Moses about his goodness. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Goodness is a characteristic of God, just like his holiness and his omniscience. He applies that goodness perfectly but he applies it as he sees fit without the need to consult anyone else. Of course, Jesus knew this truth. In the very next chapter of John, Jesus tells us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. In this miracle, we see God having mercy on one he has chosen to have mercy. We see him drawing one to Jesus in a completely unambiguous manner. I'm convinced that before the creation of anything that was created, God had already selected this particular man for this role. Jesus didn't need to hunt for the right person to perform the miracle. Instead, he could go straight to that one man on whichever of the five colonnades he lay, wherever he was in that great crowd, because Jesus was delivering God's mercy to the one individual in that multitude of equally needy, 
that God had selected to receive it at that particular moment. We see a similar situation take place a few we'll see a similar ta- situation taking place in a few weeks when Brian preaches about the miracle when Jesus heals the man born blind. In John 9 it says as he went along he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Our human response is typically, that's just not fair. But when we really begin to understand God's mercy, a little about God's mercy, we have a very different response. Paul describes it in Romans 9.14 and following, quoting the same verse that we just read from Exodus. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Humanly, we may find this unfair, but let me ask you to consider another question. Would it be better to suffer for 38 years as an invalid and then receive God's mercy, or to live a life completely free of all pain and suffering but never see God's grace. For that's often the case. There are just too many accounts of those that have accepted God's mercy only when they were at rock bottom, when they were suffering from excruciating pain, or when they were facing death. To not believe that God uses the events of our lives as one of his tools as he dispenses mercy. This, of course, is never to say that we can't experience his grace without suffering, but since an act of acceptance is needed on our part, remember that invalid had to stand, carry his mat, and walk, God certainly uses the circumstances of our life to get our attention so that we can make the decision to accept what he offers freely. And that brings us to the final question. How does this passage apply to me? Well, John tells us, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This miracle provides a clear picture of that process taking place. Jesus comes to a mass of impotent people that are unable to help themselves. Some are blind, just as we are naturally blind to our true spiritual condition. Proverbs 4.19 says, But the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Others were lame, crippled, and unable to walk. They stumbled. Still others were paralyzed perhaps unable to use their hands. Spiritually blind, unable to walk, 
and completely lacking the ability to do any of the good works that we would like to think earn us a place in heaven. The great multitude provides a perfect symbolic picture of the unrepentant masses that are bound by the chains of sin. Blind, lame, paralyzed, with no way to break those chains. From that crowd, God, in his mercy, guides Jesus to one specific individual to heal. Not because of anything that invalid had done, or not because of his faith. In fact, if you listen carefully to what was read from John, you'll note that the word faith is not even mentioned. And in fact, it seems very clear that the man had none whatsoever. He didn't even know it was Jesus doing the miracle. It isn't until later, at the end of the account, see, I told you we'd get back to that end, uh, that he's given a choice, the same choice each one of us has to make, the choice to break the chains that bound him, that bind us. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, Jesus gives individuals that same choice, just using different words. To the rich young ruler, he says, sell, give to the poor, and follow me. To Nicodemus, it's a detailed explanation of the second birth. To the woman caught in the act of adultery, go, sin no more. And to this man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Some have interpreted this to mean that the man's illness was the result of his sin. I personally find that view difficult because the man's already suffered for 38 years. Even if his suffering had started as an infant, it's unlikely that he would live long enough to experience another 38 years of suffering. What could happen to him here on earth could hardly be worse than what he'd already experienced. But what could happen to him eternally certainly could be. In his mercy, Jesus was giving this invalid a choice to follow him, the only way to break the chains that truly bind, the only way to overcome the consequences of our sin nature, or to reject him and face the eternal results. And we don't know what he did. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus that had made him well. This can be read positively. He believed, and like many new Christians, he couldn't wait to tell others. And what better place to start with with those that had been questioning him about his experience? Or it can be read negatively. He rejects the offer and, like Judas, turns the information over to the authorities. Each one of us, at one time or another, has to face the same choice. If we accept and say yes to Christ, it takes us to yet another level. But we'll save that for next Sunday. Or we say no. A no is often accompanied by the same excuses the invalid did. No, I can't do it myself. Or no, I'm not good enough. 
But that's the great thing about the gift of mercy. God gives it freely, as the invalid discovered, without us having to do or be anything except accepting. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourself, it is the gift of God. And in Titus 3, 4, and 5, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. If we haven't said yes to his offer of grace and mercy, this is the time to do so. It's time to accept the real gift he offered, the invalid, and that he offers all of us. That grace and mercy is sufficient for whatever has been done in the past and for whatever we'll face in the future. It's sufficient to break any chain that binds us. When we accept him, he removes the chains that bind us spiritually, emotionally, and perhaps even physically, and changes us into something that he can and he will use despite whatever shortcomings we think we have. Back at the beginning of the sermon, I told you about Charlotte being presented with that choice. Initially, she resented the fact that she was even asked, and she was bitter about Reverend Malin's insensitive attitude about her handicap. But God spoke to her through this man, and eventually she became a Christian. She committed her life to God. God broke her chains. He broke her chains and healed her spiritually, He broke her chains and restored a proper mental attitude. But he never did heal her body. He just used her exactly as she was in a far greater way than she or anyone else could ever have imagined. Charlotte would go on to write more than 150 hymns. Many of them are still in use in the Church of England today. Every year on the anniversary of her conversion, Reverend Malin would write her a letter of encouragement. After the 14th such letter, Charlotte sat down and wrote her autobiography in song. It would become, along with Amazing Grace, one of the most influential of all Christian songs. Billy Graham would choose its title to be the title of his autobiography. And in a very real sense, Just As I Am is the autobiography of each and every one of us that accepts Christ as our Savior. As Mark comes to lead us in our final song, if you haven't already done so, do what Charlotte did as she recorded in this third verse of her famous song. Come.